Hello, friends. Welcome to the Best Speech Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pacione, and this week is story time. So we've talked a lot on this podcast about the value of stories. I'm not saying that speeches should be comprised entirely of stories because that's not a good idea, but I am saying people will remember stories than they will remember mere facts. And there's all kinds of research behind that, but even as I'm saying it, I think that probably rings true to you. Well, at the end of every at the end of every episode, I ask our guest to tell a story. And in this episode, we are going to collect a bunch of those. So, you're going to hear from 12 different speakers. You're going to hear their stories, and then I'll come back and have some final words, and we'll call it a podcast. Sound good? Then let's do it. In episode 31, we had Jemira Pollard telling her story. Let's hear from Jemira. So it's interesting because one of the things I always have to do is explain to people how I got my name, including Mike, so <laughs> that they can pronounce it correctly because I tell people it's easier to pronounce it correctly than incorrectly. And so story I always tell is that my parents, uh, obviously they knew they were pregnant with me and had all this time, but it took them to get to the hospital in labor and delivery. And they're like, hey, y'all, y'all need to name this baby. And they literally put something together. And my father, George, and my mother, Myra, put together their names. And that's how you get Jamira. However, it's interesting because my husband and I met in high school. And we've been together for almost 20 years at this point. And the man does not pronounce my name correctly. Stop it. No. He pronounces my name Jermira. Like <laughs> R. And that's because his best friend's name is Jermaine. So he always says Jermira. And I'm like, that is not how you pronounce my name. And so he never says my name. Just organically, he's like, babe or honey or whatever. So when he says it, I'm like, dude. Like not, and then he'll say, Jamira, like that, like he has to over exaggerate how to say my name because he doesn't say it. <laughs> so my son, he he'll say to me, Jamira, like he'll go around saying, "What's up, Jamira?" Because when he was young, I wanted to make sure he knew how to pronounce my name. But funny story, there is my husband mispronounces my name all the time. You did not tell me about your. Your husband does not say your name right. That's why I said, no, you got to hear this part because he, and it's funny because people are like, you know, but no, he does not pronounce my name correctly unless he, he has to try. He, he, he I just, tries, I got, I just got like a great sitcom scene in my head where uh, you two are having a fight <laughs> and he mispronounces your name. And and that like just it's not my other name. All that yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, not <how> you... <laughs> it's not it. All these years. And I another know. thing. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's so good. Never knew how to pronounce my name in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just babe. <laughs> All day. Episode 32 had Joshua Becker from Becoming Minimalist. Lastly, my friend, you leave us, you bless us with a story. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. this can be one you told from stage, or just entertain people with, or you can you can test something right now. Can I test something? Well, I already told my go-to. Yeah. I already told my go-to yeah. story. Uh, this is a story that Forced I have written. Yeah. This is a story I've written. Uh, I included in the book "Things That Matter." It's a blog post that people love, but I don't think I've ever shared it out loud. So, let me jump in and give it a shot. 
Uh, I was in Costa Rica with my family, uh, my two kids. This is maybe four years ago. So my kids were 15, 11 uh, over spring break. Uh, we went out on like a, one of these excursions, one of these uh, trips on the boat. It was snorkeling. It was dinner. It was whale watching. It was the sunset. It was the whole deal. And so there's maybe 50 or 60 of us on this little, I don't know my boat names, yacht, catamaran, one of the others. And the captain pulls into this cove and uh, he anchors or stops and he says, this is where we're going to be eating dinner and watching the sunset. And he said, but before the sun goes down, if anyone wants to go swimming or snorkeling, or if you want, you can jump off the top deck of the yacht, which is maybe 20 feet, um, 20, 25 feet. You can jump off the top deck into the water below. Uh, we're just going to hang out here. And so I just been sitting back and enjoying the trip with my wife and the kids were sitting there and I was enjoying all the sights and suddenly he stops. He's like, if you want to go swimming or jump off the thing, you can. And all the teenage boys and the 20 year olds jump up and can't wait to impress their girlfriends by jumping off the top deck. And uh, Kim turns to me and she says, um, my kids are getting ready to go jump. And Kim says, are you going to go jump? <laughs> and I wasn't going to. I was like, I just kind of want to sit here. But I, I started looking around and I started noticing that there were a lot of elderly people on the boat with us. Um, 60s, 70s, even a little bit older. And it occurred to me that even if they wanted to jump off of the top deck, like they just weren't physically able to do it anymore. And here I was, early 40s, my kids were in their teens, and um, I turned to her and I said, yeah, I'm going to jump while I still can. And um, I went and, and, I, and I jumped off the top and had a great time and swam around and all that stuff. And it's literally something that I think about a lot. Like I, my daughter was young and like, I'm going to hold her hand while we cross the street because I still can. I'm going to go play hoops in the driveway with my son because he's at home and I still can. Uh, and I've kind of used that mentality quite a bit where I just, yeah, jump, jump while you still can because seasons of life change. And um, there are times where we want to do the things that we can and we won't be able to. So that's my story. Jump while you still can. I love it. From episode 33, here's the great Enneagram 9, Kula Callahan. Last thing is Kula Callahan's story. Now, this does not need to be related to speaking. Any story in the world, it can be one you tell from stage or just it's good at a cocktail party. What's a good Kula Callahan story that you're laughing about already? Clearly, I'm already in the sports mentality. My team lost last night. It's very depressing, and I refuse to believe it happened or even speak of it past this moment. I will not think about college football until kickoff in September. Anyways, I'm an Alabama fan. It's a blessing and a curse. The biggest game every season, it doesn't matter if we end up winning the national championship or not, but if we win this one game, everything will be okay for another year. And that game is the Iron Bowl where we play Auburn. It's very intense. Backstory, when I, I'm a, I'm a nine. I'm a relatively calm person. I love harmony. I'm easygoing. I can see all sides of a situation. I get along with everybody. It's very fluid and going with the flow. Something happens to me 
<laughs> when I watch an Alabama football game, it is like a rabid dog takes over my body and I, I like dissociate completely and something else is acting for me. It's very strange. I don't know how to get rid of it. I've tried. It doesn't work. So the Iron Bowl this year, I am in Florida with my boyfriend and his family in their uh, place in Tampa. And I'm trying to be really casual about the game all day. But of course, I wake up that morning. I'm already anxious. I'm snippy. I'm irritable. I'm stressed out because it's the Iron Bowl. And if we lose this game, I'm going to have to hear about it for another year. And I just simply cannot endure that brutality for another 12 months. And Auburn's really bad this year, and we're supposed to win by three touchdowns. And it's, of course, we're going to win, but I know that this game gets into everybody's heads, and it's never what anyone thinks it's going to be. So we're having a nice morning. We go to lunch. We come back. I go for a run. They're like, Why are you going for a run right now? Like, why don't you just go later? Because we've just eaten. I'm like, Oh, I'm just trying to, you know, divert some of my stressful energy. And at that point, they were like, Okay, she's serious about the game. So we're watching the game. We, Albion played terrible. I'm not going to go back through it because of the trauma I endured watching the game. But <laughs> the point of the story is this we're in fourth overtime, okay? The fourth overtime of the game. And I, at this point, I tried to keep it together that entire time, tried not to let out any F bombs, tried not to scream. It didn't work. By the fourth end of the fourth quarter, I had thrown in the towel and I'm just not listening to anybody. Jordan, my boyfriend's trying to like calm me down, telling me to go in the other room to watch it because his family is there and they're very uh, cool shocked. Maybe you go in the other room. <laughs> Literally tried to I was like, and I don't even it's so embarrassing and crazy what happened to me. Anyways, fourth overtime, I'm screaming at this point, running around the condominium, screaming arms up, F bombs flying, humiliating performance on my part I'm sure <laughs> Auburn scores and we have to score a touchdown and get a two-point conversion to win the game and <laughs> we score the touchdown I'm losing my mind and uh it's like we're we set up to spike the ball or we set up to snap the ball for the two-point conversion I'm losing my mind and it's completely silent. And Jordan's mom looks at his dad and goes, she could be the mother of our grandchildren. Are we okay <laughs> with this? Said and out then, loud. Out loud. And I look back, look back at the TV. We score the two-point two conversion. I lose my effing line, of course. I'm like screaming, running around. At this point, Jordan has left the building, by the way. He's not even in the condo. He's outside because he's so embarrassed. And I was just like mortified and proud and embarrassed and ashamed, but also very excited and pleased with myself. It was just the most hilarious cocktail of emotions, but I will truly probably never forget that. Her looking at her husband in front of everybody. I mean, like brothers, mom, dad, aunt, the whole family is there and has witnessed my behavior. And she just says, this woman could be the mother of our grandchildren. Are we okay with this? And um, haven't talked to her since. No, <laughs> we're on great terms. But 
I mean, that story doesn't really have to do with speaking, but kind of because I was performing, I guess. I don't know. It was really stressful, but we won the game and that's all she wrote. That is a good cocktail party thing. That's a good wedding speech. So funny. From episode 34, we have entrepreneur and Forbes contributor Jody Cook. And then last question, we always end with a story. So this can be something that you told from stage, or it can just be a story that Jody likes. But Jody Cook, what's your story? When I was 19, I had a summer job in the sales office of a fairly small print and promotion company. So it was my job to sell personalized mugs. Now, everyone here has drank out of a mug, but what you might not know is that personalized mugs are better than regular mugs because they've got your brands, they've got your brand on them. So my job was to progress orders through the system and it was also to call prospects and it was to cold call as well. So I had to, I had to use this software that's called PromoServe, which is like the sales force of the personalized mug world. (laughs) My boss was called Simon. And so it was Simon's company and one day he marched into where I was working to call a meeting and it turned out that I had been using PromoServe wrong. So when I spoke to a prospect, I would put in their name, their number, whatever else, whatever other information I got from them. But you also had to assign a percentage to every prospect of how likely they were to convert to a sale of personalized mugs. And so what I'd been doing was I'd been speaking to someone and I've been like, oh, wow, they were definitely going to buy some. Like they were so excited. So they're a hundred percent. And then I'd speak to another one and they'd be not so sure Like they'd have to tell, they'd have to speak to their boss or they'd have to have a think about it. But I mean, they sounded pretty confident, like they were really good mugs. So I put them at about 80%. And then even if I spoke to someone who was like, no, we've gone with a different supplier. We're not, we don't want to buy from you. I'd think, well, they might want to in the future. I mean, people drop mugs, they, they break and they might need some more. So they were like, you know, a 30 or 40% because I was so sure that I could convince them next time. <laughs> And so when Simon marched in and called the meeting, he wanted to tell me that I had been throwing out the sales figures and the sales projections of the entire company because I was so optimistic about the the (laughs) conversion rates of these people who I was speaking to. So Simon's a funny guy. We got on pretty well. So I just said, no, you're just cynical. And actually, (laughs) what will actually happen is that my actual figures will be very, very close to my projected figures. So he was like, fine, I'll give you, I'll give you a month or something. He gave me an undefined period of time to basically prove him wrong. And I really was on a mission to prove him wrong. So there were me and there were two other salespeople as well. But what ended up happening was my sales figures were so much closer to my projections than what he would have put if he'd have been filling in the columns but also that my sales outperformed everyone else in the company and I just think that that it's all to do with naivety because I was logging in and I was seeing all these rows of dead certs that I just could not wait to speak to but other people were logging in and they were seeing a load of people who they thought didn't care so they weren't really excited about it so so I was logging in fresh face with all this naivety thinking oh my god I'm going to talk to everyone about these personalized mugs and they're all going to sign up so I would follow them up I would keep calling them I wouldn't 
think that someone was ignoring me. I like, why would someone be ignoring me? I just thought that they were busy. And so I'd try them again and again and again. And I feel like naivety is not knowing that the leads are duff and following up anyway. And it was certainly the biggest and best tool in my toolbox. And I feel like that's served me pretty well ever since. I love that with all of my heart. <laughs> uh, my friend, my friend Ryan calls that naive optimism. Yeah, it really was. I, yeah. That would be a great subject for a commencement speech or just a little anecdote in a talk in general. Oh, I love that. Wait, hold on real quick. When you say personalized mugs, do you mean a mug that says like Mike on it? It was a company. It was like a company logo or something, oh, uh, something funky oh. that a company did. Oh. So people would buy. Yeah, so it wasn't like individual. <laughs> Maybe I should have explained that. You said cold calls. You said cold calls. I'm picturing you just calling like, hey, how do you feel about a mug that has your name on it? Cool. Um, it was like corporate clients who wanted to buy like 500 mugs with their logo on and some funny ah. cheesy cheesy phrase but I mean bring it on if you want me to call individuals and ask if would you want a mug with Mike on it <laughs> you want one don't you you know what would make your day better what if your name was on that mug <laughs> <laughs> so you don't forget it this next story is one of my favorites please welcome from episode 35 Mr. Josh Ship. alright Josh let's, uh, let's hear your story a few years ago I'm in Sydney. I was hoping you would tell this story. Yes. yes. This, is a, this is a story I'm currently workshopping. So th- th- this is a good example of a story. Like I, I know there are good seeds to this story, but I would currently grade this story I'm about to tell like a 6.3 out of 10. I do Olympic scoring. Also, you- as, a, as an aside, no one in the ship scoring method, no one has ever received a 10. So. No, including my own children, which I'm a, they'll definitely need counseling for. So if you're a local and trained therapist, please reach out to me. Let's just, let me just prepay some sessions for my children. <laughs> All right. Here's the story. A few years ago, I'm in Sydney, Australia. The local time is 3 a.m. My cell phone rings. Typically, you get a call that late. It's not good, but this is good news. So my childhood best friend, Jeff, is calling to let me know that he's getting married. He's like, hey, I want you to perform our ceremony. I'm like, Jeff, yeah, I'm not a minister or whatever. He's like, look, I've... Looked into it. You can get ordained online. So I'm like, all right, well, let me look into this. Go online. Sure enough, 1999, you can indeed get ordained. (laughs) And my favorite part of this e-commerce transaction was that there was a drop-down menu where you got to choose your official title. (laughs) And I I expected like three, four options, you know, reverend, pastor, minister. I clicked that drop-down menu and it's 20 deep. (laughs) And then I caught a title that Grab my heart, my affections. I chose Archbishop Joshua Ship. <laughs> so now I'm like having fun with this. I'm super excited. I start trolling Jeff. I'm like, I'm telling him I'm gonna full like show up in the full Archbishop wardrobe. You know, the hat, the scepter. I'm gonna sprinkle the guest in eleven herbs and spices. <laughs> I demand that he lists me in the program as His Holiness Archbishop Joshua Ship. <laughs> So anyway, I perform the ceremony. We have some nice laughs. I get sincere. It's, you know, the ceremony is not about me. It's about, it's about the couple. Uh, you know, we have some laughs, some good, sweet moments. 
beautiful ceremony. Two weeks later, my phone rings. Again. It's a number I don't recognize. Let it go to voicemail. Listen to the voicemail. Yes, um, Archbishopship. This is Doward Lane down at the El Reno County Clerk's Office. I'm calling to inform you that uh, within Oklahoma, you have to be a pre-approved minister in order to perform ceremony. Therefore, Mr. Jeff's marriage is null and void. Mr. Jeff. Mr. Jeff. <laughs> so my heart sinks. I've let down my best friend. I've caused all sorts of headaches. I'm thinking back to this distinct moment during the ceremony where Jeff's concerned mother approaches me and she's like, I read somewhere online that you have to be a pre-approved in the state of, I literally like put my hand out to her and I said, ma'am, <laughs> as a man of the cloth, I can assure you this is all going <laughs> to, yeah, Mike, as my wife says about me, I'm often wrong, but never uncertain. <laughs> So I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta call Jeff. I gotta, I gotta let him. So I call him. He picks up. I want to break the tension. First, where I said, Jeff, you're living in sin. <laughs> you guys are married. <laughs> I explained the deal. I'm like, you got to go to the county clerk. It'll take five minutes. It'll be a hundred bucks. Of course, I'm paying that hundred bucks. He laughs. He's like, all right, my wife isn't gonna like this, but, but whatever. So that, Mike, is the story of why. Now, every time when they celebrate their wedding anniversary, I send them two cards, one on July 1st for their illegitimate internet archbishop wedding, and then one on July 17th of their civil ceremony. Uh, that is the story of being an archbishop. The actual ending to that story is because you told me that probably in September, and I, I was doing a wedding for my cousin in October, that wet that made me think, huh? I should probably check on like, did my license expire? Like what? So look at all this. No, 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 we're all good. Go down there when you do a wedding. You have to, you know. I guess each state is different. In Florida, yes. this wedding was in Florida. It, it asked for just name and title, and that was it. It didn't even ask oh, yeah. where my certification was from. I so thought I wrote, this is Oklahoma. It's just like, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so Florida is just name and title. That's it. Mike Pacquion, efficient. Cool. We're done. Two weeks go by and I get a phone call. And my cousin, like we text, why would she be calling me? I'm like, oh no. Like, is this? <laughs> and Josh just told me. Uh huh. State of Florida does not accept efficient. Oh no. So hold on. All you had to do was change your title? Yes. Do they accept Archbishop? Because <laughs> if so, then that's, I found my demographic. Okay. I told her, I was like, just write pastor and it worked. Amazing. That was it. So, all right. Now let's hold on. I want to talk a little behind the this this story. So this is a great example of like I don't know what to do with this story in my in the types of speeches I give. I, I go out and speak to educators and school staff, as I mentioned. But I'm slowly figuring out. Okay, the what I, what I used to be fine with doing when I was younger is just, oh, I got this great story and I think it's funny and I think an audience would laugh. Right. I've got to shove this story in there for my yeah. own personal satisfaction. And now I think with this story, it's like, this would be an awesome hook for something, but I've got to find, how does this transition into a point I would want to already make? And I, 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 I uh, again, this is why I'm like, this is, this is very much a work in progress. I think you check in with me in a year, and this is woven into the speech and it's clean and tidy. 
Uh, right now, it's like my my suspicion is I could easily transition to having difficult conversations and having to take personal responsibility when you blow it with a kid, a colleague, you know, a fellow teacher. Or there's this interesting evidence around having to have difficult conversations. You know, if you have to tell someone they have cancer, if you have to tell someone they, mm. you know, uh, someone died, it, it, the research is um, don't make jokes, don't like just literally rip off the band aid. You know, sentence one, I have bad news. Sentence two, the bad news. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, th- this is just, yeah, this is, this is a real time, like something I think is interesting. You know, this, in, I have a Google Doc where I keep, I have 200 story ideas. And, but this is one, it's like, okay, I, I pull that story idea out. It's just a bullet point. You know, Jeff, Archbishop, uh, Darlene. That, that's literally all the bullet points say. And then it's like a story like this. And then I've got to get comfortable with it. I got to find those, those moments. And then particularly with something like this, which is more on the humorous side, I've got to find the relevance. So my thought on that. Yes. There are other, it could be attention to detail, by the way, that would be another one. Hmm. But mm-hmm. the other, the other thing that a lot of people don't think to do is use the story as an opposite to the point that you're making. Uh-huh. So you could do it for that's what you're not supposed to do, right? Uh-huh. So they, like, don't call difficult conversation. Don't call and say, "Hey, you're living in sin." Like that's yes. that's not. Yes. At the end of the day, with your buddy, you knew like Jeff was going to be married still. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But this. Yeah. I mean, this is just even as someone who's done you know however many thousands of hours on stage. I don't know that actual number, but thousands conservatively. This is something where I'm like, this is decent. I'm not sure what to do with this. I think there's something here, uh, you know, and yeah. And when I'm developing these ideas, it's like, all right, I got an idea. Is it worthy of pursuing? Let me write a draft of it. Let me revise it, get some feedback. Let me tell it to a couple audiences and then decide like, should I keep revising, wash and repeat or... It's like, well, this is an interesting story to tell over lunch, but th- this yeah. is not worthy of I'm being on stage. an audience. Yep. Yeah. And Josh, that amount of effort is why you're one of the best, my friend. From episode 36, this is Charlie Marie Prangley. What's a, what's a Charlie Marie story that we should... And again, this, this might be something you told from stage, or it might just be a fun story. What, what story should we hear? First of all, how long you got? <laughs> <laughs> what, what version of this story do you want? <laughs> I want I want the best version of it, whatever okay. that is. Okay. So this is the story of how I came to be living this life in Valencia, working remote, having lots of time to create content as well as hold down a city job. Um, and it all started from making YouTube videos. When I first started out on YouTube, I uploaded consistently every single week for five years. I did not miss a week ever. Some weeks I even uploaded two videos and it was like a slow, steady slog to be building the audience behind it. But the fact that I was doing it with this consistency got recognition from a community I was part of, the Sean Wes community. I don't know if you know Sean McCabe. Um, But he had seen that I was doing this, that I was committing to this consistency. And he asked me to speak at his first conference, the Sean Wes conference in 
Austin, Texas, I think it was in 2016 is what comes to mind. Um, and I, that was my first time that I'd ever been invited to give like a proper talk. I'd done, done a couple of meetups and things like that, but this was my first speaking at a conference experience. So I was very honored, very afraid, but wanted to commit and do it anyway. Um, spent a lot of time preparing and giving this talk showed up. It went, I think pretty well for my first proper speaking experience. And it was super inspiring to be in this room of all these other, you know, creative folks who had a similar mindset. And someone who was in the room and who was also speaking at that conference was Nathan Barry, our mutual friend. He is the CEO of ConvertKit and he gave a talk about pricing and how creators can sort of like anchor pricing and do that sort of thing. Um, and he was kind of like this, the celebrity at this conference, right? Mm. Like everyone wanted to speak to Nathan Barry and everyone <laughs> was like in awe of him because um, of all his, you know, great contributions to the internet. So I was very honored when after the conference wrapped up on the last day, we were standing near the back of the room and he turns to me and my friend and says, hey, you want to go get lunch? And we were like, oh my God, Nathan Barry wants to have lunch with us. Like, this is what we're saying on the inside. Um, we grabbed, grabbed another friend and we headed off to this little pizza place and we sat there for several hours just talking all things design, all things internet and video and content and stuff. Um, partway through that conversation, Nathan says to me, have you ever considered working remotely for an email marketing software company? <laughs> and I'm like, that's a weird question. How that's an oddly very specific. specific. Yeah. <laughs> At this time, I was working uh, in-house in a in a, a startup in London. Um, and he had thought that I was a creator full-time. And it was only when we were talking and I was talking about my work and, and about design that he realized, oh, I actually still work for a company. Um and so, yeah, I was having this moment of not really understanding what he was asking. And our friend turns to me and says, dude, I think he's offering you a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I got very flustered. I was like, oh, oh, uh, okay, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Uh, you know, didn't, didn't play it off very cool. But um, I think I remember actually in the elevator as we were coming back from lunch, going back to the hotel, I gave him my business card and was like, okay, yeah, let's talk. This, that was my version. Like I'd been thinking the whole walk back to the hotel, like how do I, how do I recover from this? How do I keep this conversation going? This is a total um, dating. This is like a dating story. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. Uh, so yeah, then Nathan and I did talk. We went out for breakfast the next day, which was kind of like an interview. And a couple of months later, I joined ConvertKit and I've been there for five years now. So it all came from us speaking together at a conference. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Okay, what's the, how, how would you use that? I can think of a hundred ways you would use that, but how would you use that from stage? Ooh, I think I could use it as a, a motivator for putting yourself out there. Yeah. And in fact, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, I have, I have used this as part of that self-promotion talk in the past <laughs> as well of just saying like, look, you don't know what can happen by putting yourself out there and letting other people see your skills and learn from you. I wasn't out there looking for a job. I didn't speak at that conference because I wanted a remote job, you know, but I met people and it came about because of it. And I honestly don't know where I'd be if I hadn't done that. Um, might not have met Nathan, might not be here in this room in Valencia right now if that hadn't happened. That's so cool. It's funny. My life changed with a lunch with Nathan as well. <laughs> okay. Maybe he needs to change his name to Nathan <laughs> Lunch Changer Barry. Lunch guy. <laughs> lunch guy Barry. <laughs> in episode 37, we interviewed Chris Norton. 
You've maybe seen his movie on Netflix called Seven Yards. Let's hear Chris's story without visiting the coach who called the play on which he was injured. All right, Chris, let's finish things off with a Chris Norton story. Okay. Well, you got me, got me thinking when you're sharing about what about uh, it's not all perfect or the the struggle and like how can you bring that more to life? I remember in particular, I say, you know, in my speech when I gave it to you was if I could go back, you know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back and change. And I just say that. And you're like, well, is there a way to like illustrate that? Like make that part of the story. And it made me think of a story that was kind of dormant until I read that and it brought me back to this place. So I'll tell you this story. Um, uh, one day I went to go see my former defense and special teams football coach. I wanted to ask him what he remembered from the day of my injury. And as soon as I asked him, Tears well up in his eyes. He says, I'm the one who called the play that day to kick it short to the right side of the field. And if I had only done a normal kick or a kick to the left side of the field, none of this would have happened to you. I was stunned. You know, I had no idea he's been holding himself responsible for my injury. And it was an accident. You know, there's, there's no one to blame that myself or the player I was tackling, you know, I felt bad for my coach, but he's been carrying his guilt that he didn't need to carry. And my response to him may be hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. I said, coach, if you could go back and change that play, I wouldn't let you. I love my life. And while I didn't choose this life, I believe this life was chosen for me. And then I'll go usually into a little bit more, but that's the, the story that I added uh, per your inspiration to, to kind of, how can you elaborate saying you wouldn't go back and change it? Oh my gosh, that story. It's <laughs> way better than what I thought you'd come up with. Gosh, it's got goosebumps. Thank you. Episode 38, we devoted an episode to presenting in the corporate world. And from episode 38, we have Ashley Foss from Atlassian. Last thing is a personal story. So this can be something that you shared from stage or might just be a good cocktail party thing, whatever it is. We would love to hear an Ashley Foss story. Yeah. So I'm going to tee this up by saying that some of us are who we have always been. And there's this perception that, oh, we need to be growing and changing all the time. And like, yes, I agree with that. Growth mindset is great. But at the end of the day, some of us are who we have always been. And for me, this is evidenced by the fact that I used to play business when I was a kid, right? Like some people play dolls or some people play house. No, I played business as a kid. And there's, I have these distinct memories at my grandparents' house there was this long hallway that ended in a back room. So it was quite uh, far away from the rest of the house. And you had to walk through this hallway and there weren't any overhead lights in the hallway. So it was like a dark hallway with this bright light coming from the room at the end. And so I felt so powerful. So I would sit in that back room and my grandmother actually had these checks, these old, like old school paper checks that you used to write for payroll. 
from this defunct company. I don't know why she kept those checks, but she had stacks of them. So she gave them to us to play with, like to draw on. So I would sit in the back and I would make my brother and sister walk down the hall and like give them assignments and I would write them their paychecks and rip the check out of the book and give them their paychecks. Oh my gosh. I thought I was so boss. I would put on her high heels. I would put on her purse, which, you know, almost hung to the ground because she was an adult and I was only like eight. And so like I would walk down the hall. I know this is audio, but I am like strutting with my chest up. Like, and so I'd wear those high heels and I would wear, she had clip on earrings. So I would get dressed for work, like in the living room. And then I would walk down the long hall and then I would like, pull out the checkbook and open the book and like slam it down because you know that's what I thought bosses did and then I would like I was like because you know my brother and sister they're not allowed in the office unless they're picking up their checks so they're in the living room far away and so I'm like yelling like okay okay you can come get your paychecks now and then I'm like waiting for them and you know my baby sister at the time was like four she doesn't know what's going on so she comes <laughs> running into the room oh my gosh Mike I was the best at fake business. Like I, nerd. I was so good at business. Let me, you don't even know. You don't even know. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I was working remotely for years, but it, it's ratcheted up the last two, obviously. Right. Luca is almost three and we have generally just explained to him, well, dad is on a call. Right. And he's, he's recently been more, interested in what data does for work. So yeah. he often sneaks into the office Yep. and he gets yep. up on my chair and he closes the door and then we come in. He's like, I'm on a call. He does it at <laughs> Ikea. Sometimes in the middle of the day, he's just like, I have to take a call. Maybe we have another Ashley. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Okay. In 20 years, when Luca gets his first job, <laughs> we need to reprise this podcast and be like, Luca, what do you do for a living? How does that relate to your childhood dreams of being on a call? In I'm, on a call. <laughs> I'm on a call. Oh my I'm on God. a call. That is amazing. Our next storyteller is David Lemus, episode 39. All right, last thing is we always end with a story. So this can be a story you've told from stage. This can be a story that's not from stage. Any sort of story. What is your story, sir? I think my story get back, gets back to like getting into action and confidence building. And it relates to my own failure of not getting into Stanford for grad school. So this is back, I don't know, 15 years ago. Uh, I was applying to grad school at Stanford in their product design program because I wanted to do more design thinking work. And to me, I was very, what I call black and white thinking. The only way that I can practice this design thinking work is if I go to grad school at the best possible place to do it. I applied. It was a incredibly arduous year of applying. I would go to a, a, a wine bar every night and drink and create my portfolio and tap into creativity. And I made it as a finalist, the top 10 people for this program. And they only accepted six people. I did not get in and it crushed me because I thought to myself, I will never do design thinking because I got rejected from this program. I had a follow-up call with, uh, Banny Banerjee, 
who was the then head of the program, he was kind enough to, hey, why didn't I get in? What could I do better? And what he told me at the time I was living in DC area, and I told him, you know, design doesn't really exist here, right? I know it. I don't have people here. The only way I can do this is, is if I go to, to Stanford. And he told me, David, it exists around you. You just have to look for it and you just have to start practicing from where you are. And it was this very sage advice. And he was like, okay, I got to go. Bye. Click. And it's like, what do I do with this? <laughs> right? It doesn't exist. But as soon as I started to shift my own mindset and realize I can practice from where I am, it launched my career in a whole new way. And hey, now I, now I teach design thinking to other people inside of organizations. So my story relates to even for you all out there and how you can start practicing being a facilitator, practicing these tips. It's starting from where you are. I love it so much that it's just a quick phone call. Gotta go. I can picture that whole thing. It's so good. One of the best storytellers out there, in fact, she's got a whole copywriting course on it, is Laura Belgre. So episode 40, this is Laura Belgre. Time for the yeah. story? Okay. So this is a Laura Belgre story. And again, this doesn't have to be something you shared from stage. Uh, okay, good. It's not. Although I do share it, I believe, in my book. It's um, in that final chapter, which I'm working on right now. And I think it'll probably stay in, but... So when I was in elementary school, I went to this Upper West Side, very progressive school, very much born of the 1970s. It was shaped like a, they, people called it the TV school because it looks like a TV set, or some of them called it the flash cube school because it looked like a flash cube, no walls on the insides, um, very lax, like we called our teachers by their first names. Uh, you know, Suki, Jim, we'd say, hey, George is being a dick today. And uh, like the, you didn't even call it a school. It was called a learning center. Um, and did you like get real grades or did they give you like an alligator? Like, I got an we, alligator. <laughs> we got check, check plus, check plus plus. Oh, and there was also check minus. And, um, and we all had ways of like getting out of homework. The sexy girl. Uh, you know, the, the hottest girl in the class would like make sure that her um, boat neck shirt was off the shoulder and showing her bra strap. And she'd be like, uh, Larry, I really don't think it's fair that you're giving us so much homework. And he'd be like, well, fair, fair point. Because, you know, forward thinking educator. Um, and so that probably explains why there's that is context for this assignment and the way I did it. So in social studies, we had a current events assignment or a regular one where we had to take any periodical and uh, summarize it, create a, do a, a summary with footnotes and quotes and all that stuff. Um, and I hated it. We all hated it. And when it, it was assigned to us, um, the teacher, this was actually Larry, said, it can be any periodical. And I was like, any periodical? And he said, yes, any periodical. And so I did my current events summary, my report on Penthouse Forum, a letter in Penthouse Forum. And um, I think I summarized it beautifully. I used quotation marks beautifully. I understood the assignment and what made references to the gentleman's quote, raging hard on. And I said, like, in total, the man has four, quote, raging hard-ons. And then I had footnotes and everything like that. And um, 
everyone's always like, well, you must have flunked that one, right? I got a check plus. I didn't get a check plus plus, but I got it handed back to me with a check plus and just a little note at the bottom that said, maybe next time try the New Yorker, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) And that is my story. And uh, if I were telling it on stage, I would probably say that that is that that inappropriate it was it appropriate no i was i would say inappropriate is my middle name actually my middle name is sharon but i don't like to share that um and i love to bring that inappropriate kind of off-label use energy to my business and everything that i do i like to write about what i like to write about and i'm not a supposed to person and my business is not a supposed to business and that's the way i like it and I'm Laura fucking Belgrade. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, Laura, I'm such a fan. And our last storyteller for this episode is Steve Cam, my good friend, Steve Cam. Yeah, I'll go with the story that I love to tell. And that's, I, I lived like James Bond in, uh, for a weekend and uh, made money. <laughs> on the on the process. So I was living out of a backpack in 2011 and had grown up watching James Bond, you know, like my formative years took place during GoldenEye and playing GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64. So I was like, someday I want to become James Bond. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like probably not the international espionage and, and murder thing, like probably not that, but I could do all the other cool stuff that James Bond does. And for me, it was like, I need to be gambling in an exotic location. I need to be dressed to the nines and I need to pretend like I belong. So for me, that was Monaco and the famous Monte Carlo casino. And I needed to be in a tuxedo. Um, Again, I'm living out of a backpack. I have minimal funds at the time. So I kind of had to like reverse engineer it. It's like, okay, I have... 30,000 Marriott points. If I buy 10,000 more for like, you know, 50 bucks, I can stay at the Fairmont Monte Carlo, which is on stilts overlooking the Mediterranean. Like, wow. Okay. Uh, I need a tuxedo. Um, I'm living out of a backpack. I don't travel with the tuxedo, Uh, but let's see what I can find. So I'm in a hostel in Nice, France, which is like the town next to Monaco. And there's a, somebody staying in the hostel I was staying in happened to speak French. And we Googled like tuxedo rental and we found some place on a map. And, and I went to, it was like this back alleyway and I walked in and it was like a costume, it was like a costume shop or like almost like a Spencer gifts type, like weird, like with like giant furry animal costumes. I'm like, Oh God, what, uh, what did we walk into? And, and the woman who I was with uh, spoke French. So she was like, uh, you know, do you rent tuxedos? And the guy's like, oh, yes, right this way. And went in the back room. And sure enough, they had like a wall of like rentable tuxedos. So for like 150 bucks, I could rent a tux for the weekend. So I was like, okay, the hotel is free. I can take a 20 minute train ride to Monaco, 150 bucks for the tuxedo. And I had been saving like 50 bucks a month into like a gambler account. So I had like 500 bucks that I could bring to the Monte Carlo. So I like, with my backpack walking into the Fairmont Monte Carlo and a tuxedo over my shoulder and like check into my hotel room. I'm like giggling, like laughing to myself. Like I don't belong here and this is ridiculous. Uh, 
And then I put on my tux and I walk up the hill and I walk in and sit down at a blackjack table. And I I'd played enough blackjack, but I think the minimum was like 25 or 30 euro a hand, which is like decent money at the time that was like 50 bucks. I'm like, geez, $50 a hand blackjack. Well, this might not last, but like, you know, I, I set the money aside. I prepared for it. I planned for it. And uh, I ended up like, I think I doubled my money. So like by the end of the weekend, it was like, didn't pay for the hotel. Got, I think I got, you know, some free drinks, um, doubled my money at the blackjack table and, uh, and then got to like, took the train home back to the, the, uh, the tuxedo costume shop and returned it. I met some people at the blackjack table and like we stayed out like at some like Monte Carlo or Monaco nightclub until like four in the morning. I was like, this is ridiculous. Uh, what a night. And, um, got a chance to like check that big item off my bucket list of like, take a childhood inspiration, find a way to reverse engineer it cheaply, but have a fun doing it. And then, uh, get have a chance to like make that memory and to do it in a way that like also didn't, you know, destroy or empty my bank account. Uh, was was pretty fun wow oh my gosh it's so, good. It's so good i've said it before i'll say it again stories stick with people better than regular facts do better than abstract ideas do it is essential for you to be a good speaker to learn how to tell stories so that's why we have stories at the end of every episode uh, and if you're interested in help with stories in the future, you should get on our email list because I will be rolling out a storytelling class, meaning storytelling, meaning like stories from stage class next year. So for that, go to bestspeech.co, bestspeech.co. I've been your host, Mike Pacquione. The Best Speech Podcast is lightly edited and fully produced by Alicia Otieno. The music you're hearing is from Jonah Ramey. Until next time, my friends, do good things out there.